0: Oh, we're talking about fear on this overnight Escape Central. Oh, this, this ought to be a good one. And uh, before I say anything else, uh, we have this tiny, uh, tiny, but significant uh, contribution from none other than the artist-shaman Q of the Here and Heck series. And I recently interviewed him on the Appreciator series. But he sent this small bit that I think serves as a very good uh, opening. So fear is your greatest ally.
1: Once you find your greatest fear, which touches on the fear of death, in other words, an ultimate fear, then it is your work to make that fear, a particular fear, into an ally that you walk with your
0: entire life in preparation of your death. And some interesting thoughts. And uh, we, we have a Big plate of contributors. We're getting back into the swing of things as far as that goes. Before we part company, if you stick with us, which I insist you do, we are going to hear from Simon, Mike Booty, Chad Bowers, and Frank Edward Norham. We've already heard from the artist Shaman Q. So a full plate of fear for the curious, the kooky, and uh, you should have been here. Um, if you will have the opportunity, of course, you can always at any time now or the future do what we call a follow up, which is the same as a contribution. And these will be included on a, ne- a subsequent, in fact, the most adjacent next overnight scape central um. And at the end of the show, of course, you will be invited, as always, to contribute and full instructions on how you can do that. And it's pretty easy, especially in this modern age when we all have phones and devices. Um, and if you're Mike shy, we have a uh, way you can still contribute. So just keep listening and do consider being part of the magic here on the Overnightscape Central. Uh, because we have so much to get to. Let's just jump right into things and hear what Simon has to say.
1: Fear. All right, let's talk about fear. Uh, Here's the interactive part. You can use Google Maps to look at this location. So if you look at 1711 State Road in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, where the CVS is now, the east side of that parking lot was sunk about 20 feet below the surrounding surface streets and you can still see the top of the old retaining wall in the trees at the back of the parking lot and that concrete wall extended all the way down to the floor of the old parking lot I guess they got sick of that pit flooding and filled it in with dirt so Back in the day, uh, when you wanted to buy soda, you'd go to the store and you would buy bottles of soda pop. And then you would bring those bottles back to the store to get your deposit back on on the bottles. But what sometimes I did, under the influence of some older children, uh, was I would uh, take the bottles to the top of this... 20-foot retaining wall and drop them into the asphalt parking lot and the thing about coke bottles when you drop them from that height they bounce Now I don't know what it is about maybe the construction of this bottle it's so well designed to handle transportation and different temperatures but you can try this experiment yourself take a soda bottle and drop it from about 20 feet and it'll bounce and the second time it hits that's when it's going to shatter and i don't really know any other type of glass or um ceramics that do that usually they hit the the ground and they they break but i told my dad about that and he told me that yeah well people bounce too if you jump like off uh, 50 stories When you hit the ground, you're going to bounce and you won't even feel the pain until you hit the ground again. Or maybe if you bounce high enough while you're still in the air. So there's your dose of fear. Have a great day.
0: And indeed, you dig around on Google Maps, it didn't take me very long. It's Cuyahoga, C-U-A, H-O-G-A. Well, Google corrected it Anyhow, It's a miracle. You almost don't need to know how to spell to do anything anymore. And usually you can figure it out unless you're particularly horrific in that. And uh, thank you, Simon, for sharing that. And uh, as we sink into the depths of varying forms of fear on the Overnightscape Central, we will keep the momentum going because... The Midnight Citizen, who just released a new show, by the way, on ONSUG.com that you're going to want to check out. But first, no, don't go anywhere. We've got some Midnight Citizen for you, exclusive to the Overnightscape Central, right here as Mike Booty talks about fear.
2: Well, hello, Overnightscape Central. It's Mike Booty, your scary Midnight Citizen. Um yeah, there's that classical notion of fear. Um being afraid of the dark, what's in the shadows, the not knowing. The not knowing is the universal uh bridge between the childhood notion of fear and the adult notion of fear. Because when you're a child, you just don't know anything. You really do think that um, you you have this very real notion that magic is real, that the supernatural is real, that ghosts are real. You, you do not have to see things to believe it. Uh, many of us grow up with this notion that, uh, that this, this jolly fat man puts a bunch of toys in a sleigh and travels all across the world, and one night and if if that can be accomplished then anything could be accomplished the, the 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 dark forces could have their way on us and when i was a kid i always had this notion that there was a monster in my closet and there was also a monster under my bed and i was like just a guest in their domain whenever i went to bed at night i always had this image in my head of every time I would turn my head away from the closet and actually sleep facing the wall of my bedroom that a thick gray smoke would begin coming out in between the cracks of the doors of the closet and the closet door would slowly creak open and a tall hooded figure would float toward me to grab me. And so for probably the first five or six years of my conscious life, um, I couldn't sleep facing the wall. I always had to sleep facing the closet and the door. I had to just kind of get a, a strong sense of my surroundings. And uh, even even to this day, I have a very difficult time uh, sleeping uh, with my face to the wall, I have to, uh, generally I sleep, uh, on my back. I, I lay on my back when I'm, when I'm wide awake, when I'm trying to get to sleep. And then when I am beginning to seriously float into subconsciousness, when I, when I really do feel like I'm, I'm falling asleep, uh, then I can get to the point where my mind doesn't care. I just want to be comfortable and, um, then I will generally turn on my side facing away from the door. But uh, I no longer believe that there's a monster in my closet. For one thing, I live in a very small apartment. It would be very, very difficult for a monster to of of any kind to, to fit in that closet. They, they would just be uncomfortable in there. (laughs) I no longer believe in monsters under the bed, uh, either because, uh, by this time of my life, I've am- I've amassed enough stuff, enough property, um, enough junk that uh a lot of it is jammed under the bed. So there's just no room for them in there either. So uh yeah, I, I no longer believe in those monsters um anymore. Um I don't know when I kind of gave up my uh belief in the supernatural. I, I actually I don't know. I, I really do try to maintain a healthy skepticism. Um, so I, I don't really believe in ghosts and goblins and things like that. Um, I have not totally given up my idea that uh, that ghosts could exist or there, there could be some kind of other uh, parallel world. I just, because in order to, give up the idea that ghosts exist, that would mean that just life would essentially be um, just what it is, just what we see around us. And there's absolutely nothing else that we could transcend to, and, and that's a very depressing thought. I don't like that idea. I'm afraid that it may be true, but uh, as long as I'm here on Earth, I would like to maintain some kind of healthy belief in the afterlife or or in some kind of a supernatural parallel world i I like to think of the existence as just being at a big old car dealership and you're just walking along the roads. you're kind of looking at different bodies to inhabit and um you know you take that body and you kind of drive around in it for a while and you get routine maintenance like at the doctor's office and things like that uh and then eventually you just kind of trade it up for another one. So yeah. Maybe that could happen. I don't know. So it's possible. Yeah, but but when I was a kid, I, I definitely had um a very real fear of things that I could not see, of things that I just uh I I that things were always out to get me. I was I was convinced And, um, I don't know, I'm going to admit something kind of embarrassing for, uh, the first, you know, three or four years of my life, I, I, I slept with my parents. I don't know. Did anybody else do that? I hope, I hope I'm not the only one. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I, I had to, uh, my parents got me my own. Obviously I had my own bedroom, my own nursery. So for the first year or so of my life, I probably didn't give a shit, um, (laughs) because my mom said i was like always sleeping that sounds about right uh but yeah eventually i i got to the point where i kind of became uh very conscious of my surroundings and i didn't like being in a dark room all by myself so so i did i i slept with my parents for quite a while after i was born and um eventually they, they, they weaned me off of it. They kind of gave me some rewards, like a reward system. Like I would get like an extra bowl of cereal in the morning if I slept by myself. And, um, and it worked. (laughs) I'm happy to say I'm no longer sleeping with my parents. Um, so that's, that's good. Um, yeah, I think it was just like, Okay. Try one night by yourself, and then you can sleep with us tomorrow night. And then try two nights with yourself, and, and you can sleep with us tomorrow night. And um, yeah, it was like the first habit I think I broke. I've had a lot of habits since then. My most recent one is like coffee, and I guess probably cigars. So yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. When you're when you're a kid, you just have this. Uh, real fear of of what's in the shadows what's in the dark of what you just can't see and you you have a lot of nightmares like i still remember uh some nightmares i had when i was a really little child of just being chased through a wide open field in the middle of the day by a hooded figure it was always a hooded figure the cloak man and he drove like an old. I guess it wasn't old at the time. It was like a 1980s pickup truck. <laughs> he was how to get. He was afraid of redneck cult members. I guess I don't know. Maybe that's that's what Freud would say about that. Um, and yeah, as you as you get older, you start being so much afraid of the dark. Um, I was I was in I was in the Boy Scouts. Uh, when I was in elementary middle school as I think a lot of boys were, and, uh, we would go on camp outs and I, I hated going on camp outs with a passion because there was always that moment, that night, that, 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 that time during the night when you would be in your tent all by yourself or maybe like one of your scout mates was like sleeping in there with you. And, um, You would see, I just got a call from a, from a, from a, somebody trying to scam me, a telemarketer. That's a real fear that I have as an adult. It's just being scammed. I'll get to that, but (laughs) yeah, there would always be that moment, um, in the middle of the night when, um, all the fake fart noises and all the real fart noises to make each other laugh, they would start kind of dying out at the camp out. And, uh, and then suddenly it was just like you and the woods, And just every little small sound was a bear or a serial killer, an axe murderer, like you saw on Friday the 13th, or a ghost just wandering around in the night uh, looking for his golden arm or something. And yeah, I was always the last person to go to sleep in these campouts. I never could sleep in the woods, and and that's how I knew I was just going to be a bad Boy Scout. Uh, cause I just never, I never could sleep on these camp outs and I would just be up all night long. I hated camping so much. Um, and then as, and then as I, I, I grew up, I got old enough to begin it, being interesting in, in going camping again. When I was in college, um, I had a lot of friends and they always liked to go camping. And so I would go with them and, um, and it was, it was fantastic. It was like a different, a totally different perspective, like just, you know, not being in, I'm not going to call the Boy Scouts a cult, but it was very much just like a a big group of, you know, boys who like to do almost just masochistic things there in, in, in the, in the woods, you know, like smothering ants and lighting things on fire like the kids at the beginning of the wild bunch or something. And I just never got into that whole thing. But, um, the friends I met in college were really cool and they liked to go out to the woods to just, um, you know, just, just be away from everything. Uh, you know, uh, light a campfire, sit around that campfire, tell stories or, and, 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 and drink once, once alcohol entered the equation, um, you know, it was a lot more fun to go out to go camping too. Um, so yeah and um and I suddenly just loved camping and pretty soon I was doing camping alone I I was no longer going camping with the with the fear that there was an axe murder or anybody like that out in the woods the the biggest thing I was scared of when going camping was honestly just uh, wild animals that was very like when I was camping by myself for four nights in Shenandoah National Forest I I saw several bears while I was hiking several black bears and they're supposed to be docile, but here's the thing: sometimes they're not. So uh, that that scared me. And so, yeah, like the whole time I was in uh, camping by myself in in uh, Shenandoah National Park, um, every time I cooked a meal, every time I did anything that uh, caused a scent to occur, uh, I would I would go something like fifty yards away from my tent. I, I probably stood was up until about two o'clock in the morning hanging a food bag with all my food in it. Cause I wanted to do it properly. Um, by the time I had got it hung up to satisfaction, I, it was almost morning. So <laughs> yeah, but, uh, that's, that's kind of my point is that you, as you get older, you become a lot more, you, you fear to, never goes away. You're never not afraid of something. Um, but you become a lot more practical about it and you, you learn ways to mitigate risk so that you'll become less afraid. Um, you know, you know, what was that old Jerry Seinfeld bet? You know, it's like, according to, uh, according to statistics, uh, what is it? The two things that people are most afraid of are death and public speaking death is number two this means to the average person that if you're at the funeral you're better off in the coffin than doing the eulogy very very old old jerry seinfeld joke from the 80s but it's true (laughs) though most people are afraid of public speaking a lot more than they're afraid of death I i guess the thinking is is that when you're public speaking um you know there's consequence to that you're 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 afterwards like people will think things of you they'll think bad things of you like oh man he was a terrible public speaker he put me to sleep like your reputation is on the line whereas death there's absolutely nothing you can do about that it is kind of be better sometimes for some people i could see that to be dead than uh, public speaking i've never felt that that's necessarily true i've definitely had moments where I've had to speak in public that have put me on edge. I, I will not lie to that. Um, but, um, I, I think I fear death a lot more than uh, public speaking, but yeah, we, we mitigate these practical concerns. Uh, every day, someday we will all be dead, but we find ways to mitigate that. You know, we, uh, we exercise. Some people do. I've heard some people exercise. Um, a lot of times people are afraid of death because that's it for them. They can no longer do anything on this earth that will have any kind of impact. And so a lot of us uh, spend our days trying to find ways that will actually contribute to this earth in a way that we, uh, you know, leaving the earth in a better way than we found it. A lot of us creative folks will, uh, will create things for people to remember us by. Right. Um, yeah, in public speaking, we try and mitigate that by, um, I don't know, having a speech prepared, writing things down that we're going to say before we get, to, get up there and say it. Uh, some people feel that it's best just to, like, go up there and ad-lib. Right. Yeah, but uh, as we get older, we just, uh, we become a lot more afraid of things that we don't know um, of, of, that, that we know are real. Whereas when we we're a kid, we don't know. We're a lot more afraid of things that we don't know about that may or may not be real. So, yeah. Um, as an adult, I have um, a lot more fear over uh, not being in control of my schedule, Definitely. I'm I'm a lot more afraid of just waking up in the morning and just something coming up that's going to just take everything away from my day that I had planned. Um, I'm I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of um, taking my car in for service and finding out that uh, it's a lot worse than they thought and it's going to cost a lot more money. I'm afraid of driving my car at all. And just hearing a weird kind of rattling noise. And what is that? And just suddenly seeing my future, my immediate future, having to take Uber rides and just waiting all day long by the phone at my house, just waiting for the mechanic to call and just tell me how much it's going to cost me. I'm afraid of that. And yeah, I'm afraid of uh, my medical condition. I'm afraid that, um, I'm afraid of, you know, just any moment now something that can happen to me or anybody else in my family. Um, and uh, yeah, like right now I am, I'm dealing with something like that. Uh, my mother-in-law is in the hospital in Savannah, Georgia. She had to go in last night cause she had chest pains and um, you know, there she's, as we speak, she's uh, in opera. She, she could be going into operation um, later on today. I don't think it'll get that bad. I really hope it doesn't, but uh, they are at least uh, putting a stint in her heart and, and all that. It looks like she had a mild heart attack. So, so right now we are uh, kind of dealing with, um, my wife is probably going to have to drop everything and drive to Savannah. Um, I can't go with her because I've got, I've got to work here and I've got class and, so we're, we're dealing with all that right now. So I'm, I'm stepping out right now and dealing with all these things that we just don't know right now we are in a holding pattern. We do not know. And, um, and I'm very afraid right now. But I'm glad that I'm able to actually record some thoughts. And uh, hopefully I'm sorry for dumping all this on you guys. But uh, yeah, I got to find some way, some lighter way to uh end this right um yeah i i uh saw a movie recently that is very much about the uh just manifestation of adult fear um this movie called after hours with griffin dunn directed by uh, martin scorsese back in the 80s and just uh, one of my favorite movies although it's a really really difficult film to watch and it really is just the perfect manifestation of adult fear is the best way i could say it it's this uh griffin dunn is like this office desk jockey who goes out to eat by himself one night he has nothing else going on in his life he's really really bored he's just like a his life is a perfect flat line and he meets this girl played by Roseanne Arquette, who uh he's kind of interested in and in, invites him to come up to uh Soho in um in New York. And um from there, like he he loses all of his money in a cab on the way down there, so he has no money. Um he ends up completely stranded, the subway fare goes up, and he doesn't have any money to pay it, so He's he just stuck in this situation. He's confused as a, a neighbor neighborhood burglar and hunted down by this lynch mob of uh, concerned, I, I guess, early com people. And it's just this perfect, I mean, we've all had those moments, right, where we're kind of stranded or just the universe seems to be so against us and every little decision we do is incorrect and all those Incorrect decisions just compound on top of each other um, to just unnerve us and um yeah i i've I've been in those plenty of those situations myself in really really bad places where nobody seems to really care about your well being you're just like a a customer or some schmuck or whatever you know you're, you're it's like places like airports for instance. <laughs> Uh, any kind of bureaucracy, the DMV, you know. See, see, these these are things that we're not scared of as, as kids. And in a lot of ways, I wish I could go back to being scared of monsters, thinking the monsters are possibly real. Because those are kind of fun. Because sometimes monsters can be kind of cool. You know, like in that movie Monsters, Inc. or something. Um... There's no way at all the DMV is ever going to be cool. That's that's just like a total horrible monster that we all have to deal with. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm going to throw it back to UPQ. I'm looking forward to what everybody else has to say.
0: Oh yes, the well, the right. childhood fears and the yeah, the wanting to sleep in the bed with your parents. That's I don't remember that, and I don't think, well, at least I've never been told about it, but I do remember, you know, having a kid of my own and coping with that. And yeah, it's a genuine fear. You can feel it, especially if it's somebody close to you. Like, just like uh, when I was younger, my younger brother had this terrible fear of the dark, and, and he would, there were monsters literally in the dark that terrified him uh the unknown like you said uh, what we don't know and might imagine is someplace, and that goes with you know the anticipating illness or pain or even you know car trouble as you said uh it's the not knowing and i can totally uh resonate Uh, i really the health of others especially somebody important to you at it, 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 like the waiting room of a hospital or uh for example right now well when we have older relatives my parents um my mother right now that because of the smoke in the northeast she's always had very sensitive lungs and she's developed double pneumonia at this point and yeah that's the fear of loss of something that just has always been there perhaps and provided some sort of reassurance and security now that's really scary um then of course yeah the fear of you know losing a job not having money uh whatever these are the real fears and yet you know when we go and we're scared at a movie it's more of a shock thing that's not the, the real fear are these smaller things that gnaw at the back of our minds maybe I don't know but I, thanks Mike for that and um, yeah. I, by the way th- this, th- it, 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 we can always re- uh, revisit this in the context of other things but there's a lot to this fear the more we think about it and you know, now that I'm becoming an old guy, uh, in my sixties now, um, the more I think about it, yeah, fear. I think I'll talk about that later in the segment. That I, I, I've actually, normally I do not, but I've actually recorded a piece that I will be playing at the end of the show instead of just commenting and stomping on other uh, people's threads and thoughts. Um, next up, this uh, I'm wondering which way our friend from the incredible True Facts of Space and another Alabaman, we have two Alabama residents who are regulars here. We have Mike Booty and Chad Bowers, and we've got them both this time. And that, that just, I mean, it could be people from all over the world, and yet two from Alabama. That's kind of scary. But I have no fear, as uh, we wonder whether he's going to take his absurdist approach, take it serious, or a little bit of both. You never know what's going to happen with Chad, so let's listen together.
3: Fear. Kate, fear. Night, fear. Fear, the unknown. Alarms, uh, you know, alarm clocks are quite irritating. I have a bad habit of uh, looking at the alarm clock around four thirty and thinking, "Oh man, got an hour and a half to sleep here, so I should probably close my eyes." And then, like every minute, I should look over and I should see what time it is now. And this, oh, it's Forty-two, it's four forty-three, uh, you know, and it skips around a bit. If you find yourself riding the snooze, every nine minutes that bus comes back around to pick you up. It no more stops than the inevitable movement of time. It uh, things keep happening. Essentially, that's the problem. You can't just push pause, you know, Uh, P-A-U-S-E, P-A-U-S-E, yeah, the pause button, just put it all on pause, just, uh, you know, hold it, kind of like modern television streaming, when we started taping things, or videoing, or watching things from taped, just pause it but that alarm clock I just can't look away there's there's so something so dynamically interesting about it that it's uh I know it's no good I know I'm going to wish I had just not done that but it may be that I'm addicted to the uh, adrenaline rush of panic that it puts through me the the addiction to cortisol in the uh, in the human body. Spoiled milk. Spoiled milk is a fear that when you want some milk and you're going to pour some cereal and the age of the milk is dubious, you go to smell it and then you don't always know if that's a fair test because if you smell the the little label on top, you know, that may have absorbed some of the milk and gone bad just within the top. So you could be smelling the top of your milk and crust around the top. You could smell it, and it could smell a little bad. You really don't know till you, uh, till you drink it. I don't even know if it'll kill you. If it is bad, it might just turn into cheese or some other milk product. Bacteria milk, for instance. Spoiled milk will flat ruin a bowl of cereal. Another fear. Uh, childhood. A fear of a carton full of vengeful Rubik's cubes. All coming at me. Little pieces, ranging themselves in colors wasp stuck inside of a horsefly and biting me on the arm. I remember at the uh, Epcot monorail station on some warm nights, if the, uh, you know, wind was blowing out of the right direction, you'd get these horseflies that would come in. Horrible. Luckily, it didn't happen very often. The, uh, the helicopters that came out at night and sprayed poison all over the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Kept them at bay pretty good, but there were a couple uh, days, and it was just horrible because once you had been through it, you feared that when you were next scheduled at uh, the Epcot monorail station, you feared that, uh, you know, the damn horseflies with was a wasp inside of them were gonna bite you they'd kind of land and just casually bite you it was more like it was more like this big critter landed on your arm and he kind of like licked his lips and looked up at you with one eye you know bigger than the other and then he sunk his teeth in and just took a big bite didn't like him at all but yeah. Enneagram, type five. Hey, that's me. A total fear of being helpless. Yeah. yeah. Fixed fear, being overwhelmed, fear of being overwhelmed. Type fives. We fear being overwhelmed by our own needs as well as the needs of others. fear, being uh, annihilated or invaded, not existing at all, being thought of as incapable, just flat ignorant, having these obligations that leech off of my energy field and uh, leave me feeling desiccated. type fears just have a big fear of uh, this not having enough to take care of uh, their needs, you know, being incompetent or not knowing enough, making a decision without enough information. Scared of jars filled with small spaces and also a jar full of orange holes next to half a jar of yellow insects. Mason jars. Eternal nothing. Fear of the eternal nothing. Fear that it was all for nothing. Fear that everything you ever thought was interesting or could be was just pointless. And it was just all for nothing. Just a big waste of time. ALS, sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease. That's a... That's a fear. I had an uncle that uh, died from ALS. Just horrible business. You start off with a little bit of a tiredness in your muscles, and months later, you're having trouble talking and yeah sometime after that you, you get so weak your muscles can't breathe for you anymore it's uh your mind never goes but everything else does around you and you're completely helpless and trapped that's not good that's a fear fear that you're just minding your own business one day yeah totally fine, and then you wake up the next day with a bit of a headache. Turns out, a month ago, you went on a camping trip, and uh, you got infected. It's It's been in you ever since, but you didn't know it till now. You know, you've got a headache. The rabies is in your brain. You're as good as dead. There's next to nothing anyone can do for you put you in a coma and say a prayer, but the odds against you are 101 to 1. There's a 101% chance that that you have died of rabies, you're just not aware of it yet. To you, it just feels like a headache. It comes after or comes with soon after incredible pain. Irrational hydrophobia. Manic behavioral changes, foaming at the mouth, uh, loss of motor control, running around wildly. Painting walls, mopping floors, cleaning toilets, eating toast, just uncontrolled behavior. Flipping spices like pepper over your shoulders, breeding with rabbits in the backyard Putting new brakes on small automobiles, it's it's a bad business that rabies sneak up on you and incapacitate you. Perhaps you should be afraid of rabies if you haven't already got grafir. You know when you have something brand new and it's just perfect. It's so perfect that it just will never be this perfect again. Cars are like that often. That fear of parking in a grocery store parking lot. Last, uh, last Honda we got the, uh, day after, you know, somebody rammed a cart into it. We were just went to the grocery store real quick, came out and somebody had rammed a cart into the door. know, yeah. It's not the end of the world, right? I mean, you do have insurance, but there's, a uh, you know, a couple hundred dollar deductibles, so. Gee, thanks, random person. A couple hundred dollar deductible, higher rates all for doing nothing, doing nothing wrong. I did nothing. nothing Your. I'm not resisting. I can't breathe. I'm not resisting. I'm standing outside in the rain. I'm standing outside. In the rain. I fear that's just not true at all. I fear that the previous statements have been highly misleading. When you've got something coming up that's kind of scary to you, you know. There's a lot of fear in that. This, this past week, a small group I'm involved with, we were doing a service project and... We went to this lady's house, and her entire front yard was grown up like a forest. You could not see the grass. I think there was still some grass living beneath the trees uh, that we did uncover by the end of the day. But, you know, it's 105 degree, um, what do you call it, 104 degree uh, temperatures recently. So I'd been fearing this day, you know, how would I do? Would I embarrass myself trying to help out trying to clean this uh, this lady's yard with these other guys. And, you know, the uh, the heart things that I've gone through, it makes it kind of hard to work uh, too hard without passing out. So I have to kind of cool myself off by splashing water on my head and taking breaks and, uh, you know, this kind of stuff. So fearing that day, just what would it be like? You know, how's it going to be when we arrive? You know, how's it going to, how are we going to get there? How are, how are we going to get back? How long are we going to be there? How hot is it going to be outside? You know, we were, uh, we were blessed that it was an overcast day and, uh, high that's uh, it's last Saturday here in Birmingham was about 82 degrees, but it was a lot of humidity and, uh, it was just dog breaking Stink back work. It was uh, it was a bull on a spit inside Bolero's gun with a whip on top for crochet magic. Yeah, I did about four hours and uh, came home and absolutely crashed. I was just done. I was so covered in sweat. To protect myself, I'd want snake boots and had like a long sleeve, um, breathable material shirt on. But I don't know, there's only so breathable you can get. And this wasn't anywhere near, you know, some of the high temperatures that, that we do receive over here, so. Yeah, Whew. it's a lot for me, you know fearing stuff coming up like that even if it's just little details that you don't know you know you're going to a you know, you're going to a new town and there's a an exhibit you're going to but you don't quite know if you're picking the tickets up at a uh, you know external ticket booth or you're just showing up with them or do you just show them on your phone you know how does it work how are we getting there where's the hotel what restaurants are we eating at you oh, know do we know anything about the town his these are associated fears when I was young I was afraid of the 1969 Plymouth Fury must have been something from a TV show or just the shape of that car creeped me out something about the geometry of the car itself the stance of the car I remember that car pulling in my backyard at a high rate of speed and stopping quickly, and then just sitting suspiciously, eyeing me, watching me, watching it, and it knew I was watching it. Horrifying about the that wide front grille nationwide. It was. Everything and nothing under that grill. Video games can be scary. Cause of fear. Reaction. Alien versus Predator on the Atari Jaguar. The main mission when you play the part of the Colonial Marine, and the alien has come aboard the ship as well as the Predator. And they've killed everybody and they want to kill you, so... uh You explore the different levels of the ship. You explore the ductwork between all the different rooms and levels. and uh, There's a lot of quiet moments in that game with the creepy atmosphere of the engines in the background and doors opening and closing. Sometimes in one of the long ductways you're crawling along and You start to hear something behind you. It sounds like breathing, and it's a freaking alien. You turn around, and it's too late. It's swiping at your face. Light it up, but the yellow blood gets all over you, causes some damage. In fact, could kill you. The uh, alien creatures, as well as the predator, there were 256 separate artificial intelligence routines. Uh, run entirely by the uh, sixty-eight Motorola 68,000. Some fantastic coding on that game. Andrew Whitaker. Uh, James Purplehampton. Yeah, that game was scary as hell. Mainly because of the pace, I think. It was an exploration game that required um, some action finesse at times but punctuated by long periods of uh, sometimes very quiet exploration. Looking around, trying to figure out where the key card is or whatever you're looking for next. Five, ten minutes had gone by, just the sound of your radar, sound of the ship in the background. You get lulled into a sense of complacency. Just then, damn aliens on you! It must have been like a judo Master. You know? it was like a—it's kind of like a crocodile that had the speed of a cheetah and the body of a kangaroo because it could hop really fast. We've never seen it do this, but I'm guessing that the alien could hop. You know, he seems like a natural hop. Hopping would just be part of his Everyday life growing up Perhaps even before he turned bad Is it possible that he was a peaceful Well-adjusted young alien And he kind of just Fell into the wrong YouTube algorithm And watched a few videos And became an absolute fanatic Determined to kill Ripley As well as all the other Human beings living on Earth or was he just looking for... Was he just looking for his own brand of happiness, having trouble finding it? That might be the way he saw it. I mean, it's fear of us might surprise us. It might be kind of laughable, you know. Not really a, oh, God, I'm gonna die, but, uh... A more of a chi, you know. I, I wouldn't mind eviscerating a human about now, impregnating them with my... with eggs. Yeah, face huggers were in there too. The face huggers could get you as well. I was pouring sweat. My blood too thick for Nevada. I could never explain myself in Nevada. Name, wreck, press affiliation, nothing else. Don't give them anything. The carpet was moving. Goddamn alligators sucking the blood off my toes. Coming after my pineal gland. Ignore everything about this terrible drug. Pretend it's not happening. Strange memories. Urgent night in Las Vegas. It had been five years. Seems like a lifetime. Kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco, the middle 60s. Very special. Time and a special place. No explanation, words, music, memories can touch the knowing you were there and alive in that corner. Time in the world, whatever it meant. Madness in any direction. Any hour, sparks would strike and the whole damn thing could go up. This universal sense, whatever was happening, whatever was being done, was somehow right. We were winning. We were doing what needed to be done. That sense of inevitable victory over forces of old and evil. Not in any mean military sense. We don't need that energy. Just that our energy would prevail. We had the momentum. We had all the momentum, Riding the crest of a high in this beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, go up on a tall building in Las Vegas and just look west. You could almost see, with the right kind of eyes, the high water mark. It's all downhill. The bastards won. A little fear and loathing. uh, Fear and loathing in Las Vegas for you, Mr. Hunter S. Thompson, someone who uh, I discovered at age 16 or so and had a fantastic influence on everything I thought I wanted to be. So I fear that's the truth. Back to you, PQ.
0: Oh my, a little bit of everything, including a little Hunter S. Thompson reference. That was rich, as usual, uh, Chad covers a bunch of stuff. I mean, the, the, the fear of pointlessness, and that's that's a really good one. That's one that I may have thought of it sometime, but to focus on that is if everything that one has done really, and you, a case can be made for that. I mean it's, it's the fear of not being remembered and 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 we especially, I mean, we're here trying to make this huge legacy. So after we go, somebody will remember us and listen to us or find us and present us to people. like I guess what I'm doing with Jimbo on the appreciator and the big appreciation showcase, just helping. Something uh, will somebody do that after the whole onsug is gone? Say you know we that the last of us here in our um, audio gathering place have gone on to whatever happens after we are here. Uh, is there going to be somebody who like finds us and says hey, or like Gene Shepherd? I, I'm curious to know how many people have really found him since he died in 1999 and taken that and run with it and listen to it and appreciate it. And this, this is our legacy. So yeah, the, the idea, or even when you're alive, you do something and you put all these efforts into, say, a business or a project, and then you look and it's just, it, it's not anything like, what you intended or you know you hold this job and you work hard and then the place despite all your efforts goes out of business yeah pointlessness is a good one um and those sneaky creepy up things like dizzy like the ALS um the Lou Gehrig's disease where you know you, you start feeling these symptoms and especially as you get older it's like is this not gonna go away and just get worse oh well maybe um and and yet yeah, new responsibilities um that uh, it's like you're gonna break something or destroy something like i remember when i started working on the golf course and they wanted me to work these huge machines that like cut grass and grind things up underneath them and you, you're supposed to use it here But then there's a way you stop it and you turn it around, you come back again and turn it on. Like what happens if you miss your mark and keep going and there's, you know, do you destroy some piece of ground or some piece of landscaping and, and gosh, and, and Chad's, you know, Chad's had heart problems. That's gotta be, you know, you're sudden you're doing something outside and, All of a sudden you might be feeling a little, yeah, that's, or would you even fear to make that effort? And for some reason, he reminded me of when I was a little kid, uh, and this, I still wonder when I, if you back when I was a little kid, what they would give deaf people was a lot cruder, these like elaborate hearing aids, and they were unable to really speak clearly because, I mean, now they learn how to speak better, therapy has improved, all of those things. But uh, at one time when I was a kid, this uh, deaf person had to drive me somewhere, and I had to get in the car, and I was just terrified of this man because he talked in a distorted, and I don't want to be, like, making fun, but it, in a very hard-to-understand and not like other people way and he had this wires coming out of his ears and it it was just i remember being like pressed against the far door you know at the passenger side door and just i couldn't talk to him i couldn't look at him and it, it, it was a scene you know i'm sure he felt bad and my parents gave me a good talking to and asked why I was like that. And I really had no, I still have no rational answer uh, as to why um, that is. But yeah, the, and uh, I guess that's one of these like phobic, irrational fears. And I suppose I get a vertigo in high places. I'm not afraid of the heights if I feel secure and everything is flat and straight and I can hold on to something, I can look out of that window. But if there's nothing to hold on to and something is like moving out there or moving inside, you get that little bit of dizziness that I just... You know, like a amusement park rides. Yeah, if I get on the Ferris wheel and it goes up to the top and it stops and there's no wind... I can sit up there and enjoy the view, but like a wind comes and shakes the compartment you're sitting in or something, immediately, immediately, it's just, oh, fear, 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 fear. And uh, now comes the time when uh, we talk, uh, we hear, rather, and hear the talking of our leader and uh, the, the one who usually gives us the longest and most detailed because he is the Rampler uh, account each and every week here on the Overnight Scape Central. Uh, let us listen together to Frank Edward Nora.
4: A week or two ago I went to the dentist and I was sort of prompted by had a little bit of pain in a, a tooth on the bottom and um also we hadn't uh, had any uh, dental cleaning since before COVID. Uh, I figured it's about time to uh, get back there on both counts. So I went over there, and they did some x-rays. I'm like, you know, really, um, the tooth you're complaining about, there's really nothing wrong with it. Uh, so we went through the cleaning and got the whole cleaning done, which, of course, is uh, long and drawn out, but it's, it's good to do. Then the dentist came in, and he was looking at the x-rays. He was like, yeah, yeah that, like, like, like I said, that tooth on the bottom is um, fine. But the tooth right above it, can see on the x-ray there's a cavity in there so we're definitely going to have to do that uh fix that because it was it was, there was a filling but the cavity was under the filling right so i was expecting that i was done and he's like well yeah we well, have to really take care of that i'm like all right i didn't really feel any pain there it was actually the other tooth but okay we'll ta- take care of that at some point he's like well you know because we uh, we heard that you had some pain in the lower tooth we did set aside some time uh you know if you can't do it today we could do it maybe uh this was a friday so maybe on monday or over the weekend and i'm thinking to myself oh god just got to get it over with just imagine having uh, it's better to get it over with to have to uh, the uh, the subtle fear of the dentist and everything like that so we actually went into another another room and uh he, uh, you know, he put like a numbing gel on my gum, and then he injected me with, I'm assuming, whatever Novocaine or whatever kind of cane they have these days. And uh, he said, "Okay, I'm going to start drilling. And if, raise your hand if you feel any pain." So he starts drilling, and of course, it's very unpleasant. Uh, but uh, I, 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 you know, at first I didn't really feel any pain, and um, that, that smell, like the sort of the grinding tooth. But uh, as, he, as he was drilling, I was in fear of feeling pain uh, every moment. It was so aggravating. It seemed to go on for such a long time. It was just that, that state of anticipation of wondering when that pain is coming. And it, it never did. It never did. I did not have a single bit of pain in the process. Of, of course, it's uncomfortable and it's annoying, but... Um, no pain, but I did have that fear of pain. I experienced that fear now this is a very mild fear compar- comparatively, but that's just one example of fear Of course, when I think of fear the phrase comes to mind fear is the mind killer fear is the mind killer, which I think is from dune I believe I, I'm pretty sure it's from dune uh, but I remember it being in a uh, the soundtrack. Remember that uh, video game Rez R E Z from uh, on Dreamcast, and then later it was on I think PlayStation two or three. Very cool game, but there was one of these songs that they sampled. That fear is the mind killer. Fear is the mind killer. Um, what does that even mean? Fear is the mind killer. I don't know. I have to look it up. Hold on a second. Let me see. All right, so it's from uh, Dune by Frank Herbert, the first book. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn. Sorry, there was a pop-up. I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. All right, that's just a quote. It's from the Benny Jesuit uh, religion or whatever. I don't know. I I I was I watched a bunch of the, the Dune stuff eh, the last year or the year before. There was that new Dune movie part one, which is all right, and I watched the David Lynch version with Kyle MacLachlan. You know, I'm not sure. I just I guess sort of mastering your fear is what it's sort of about. Now, what is fear? Uh, I think fear is one of the uh, what would you even call it its it's a, it's a sense it's a feeling right and i've talked about this in the past that you know like uh the human being which we're we're all in as far as we know are they any non humans listening I always wonder but uh as we are kind of operating a a human body, which is something like a vehicle, whoa. Where did those wind chime sounds come from? All of a sudden, scary. It's creepy. It's causing a bit of fear. I take my. What The hell? Where are they? Because when I have the when I have my ear, earbuds in, I, I I can't tell what direction things are coming from. That was weird. Um. So operating a human body, as we all are familiar with. Uh, it is like a vehicle. Now, of course, and I, th- I have talked about this on my show recently, you know, the idea that I know some people think we are just the body and what we, our sense of self is just electrical signals in the brain. I tend to favor the idea that we are uh, beings outside of this entire uh, human body, that we enter in almost like a, driving a car, right? And... Um, so we are not human beings. We are another type of entity of some sort that enters in and operates a human being. In this case, seemingly for from birth to death, you're sort of locked into the one human you're attached to. And, of course, that brings up a, one major fear, the fear of death, right? That uh, we know we're all going to die at some point, but do we? I think we all sort of imagine that They'll come with up with that immortality breakthrough at some point. If we can only live long enough, maybe we can benefit from that. But anyway, um, the idea is that to operate a human being, the, uh, uh, like in the car, you have your dashboard and the readouts. You have, see how fast you're going, to the speedometer, and you have the gas gauge and, right, the temperature and all that other stuff. It's all there in front of you. But as a human being, there's something similar to that. But it's it the readout or the output of this system is is in the form of feelings, of sensations, urges, etc. Right? Um, so it's a, a subtler system. If I may use the, the term subtler, am I saying that s u b t l e r subtler subtler subtler? What the hell kind of word is that? That, for example, in order to um, you know, instead of a gas gauge, we feel thirsty. We feel hungry, right? So we know it's it's time to drink some water or some other sort of liquids when we feel thirsty, right, rather than looking at a gauge. And same thing with food. And breathing, of course, is one of those things that is, uh, interestingly, uh, both an automatic function that you can then take conscious control of, which is interesting, as a lot of things are, such as walking. I mean, you walk without thinking about it, but you can take control of your walk, but normally you just think, go, and you just start walking. Um, right? And there's other things, such as, like, the the sexual urge is uh, necessary for the reproduction of the species, right? If, if uh, you know, if there was no urge, right, there could be a lot of people that just wouldn't bo- ever bother to do it, you know? And then in short order, there wouldn't, there wo- in short order, there wouldn't be any more people. You need to have that... Uh, Intercourse act in order to make new people, right? So there's the urge to do it is uh, is is built in so that uh, people don't just die out after one generation. And the stark reality of human life is that uh, our bodies are uh, fragile and uh, can uh, li- and, and your life can end through uh, uh, an injury. Or, or disease early you can end your life early at any moment um, is is the risk of death I mean, falling off a cliff uh, you know etc you know those kind of things so fear I think is a survival trait akin to these other sensations and urges right which um, modifies your behavior and uh, provides you a uh, a framework for like what to do, right? So um, we understand that um, certain circumstances we can get into will, are very dangerous and might cause our death or severe injury. And so uh, there's a, a strong sense of fear to uh, make sure you stay away from there. So for example, a fear of heights, for example, these are, th- and phobias are uh, another topic, right? But I think phobias are just a sort of uh, the same phenomenon, but sort of uh, thrown into into uh, 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 in, in some kind of a disorder, right? Where it's getting to be too much, right? For example, uh, you know, if, if there's a as something that humans had to deal with a lot, a, a cliff, you know, like you're, you're you're walking along and then there's a, a sheer drop, and as we know, if we fall a long distance, chances are we'll be very injured or killed, and so there's a fear of Of heights or getting near uh, something like that, you're going to start feeling fear. And it's going to make sure you don't just walk off that cliff like that freaking fool on that tarot card just walking off the cliff with his little dog and his bindle, you know? You know that stick with the bag on it, the bindle? Yeah. Well, that's symbolic of so many things. But anyway, um, right, without fear, really, fear is uh, obviously we should know and be taught as we're growing up what is dangerous, what's not. but fear is one of the things that does uh modify your uh behavior right to help in, to help enhance uh, sur- your survival and as a as a built-in thing it's it's uh, uh, perhaps very necessary um for survival but of course living in a so- society like this that we're living in um there's uh less circumstances that might require fear for survival but we still have that inside of us right and it it can affect us far more than needed right um sort of like again the sexual urge is something that right if if someone is able to reproduce uh you know a couple of other couple children two three children that's enough to keep the population going but that urge keeps going, even though you don't really need to be actually adding more people to the planet. The urge is still there, right? I think that's one of the essential aspects of of humanity, like, we're sort of this, the way the system was set up was, I think, for a much less sophisticated kind of system, and perhaps you might say the earlier humans were much less sophisticated, and yet we have retained those same urges that they had for, for survival and reproduction. Though we are more advanced now, we sort of retain those uh, instincts and urges uh, and, and sensations that were required for a previous time, fear amongst them. Now, of course, in day to day life, fear is not just—I mean, it's not just uh, you know imminent uh, bodily injury or death. It's uh, you're standing in, in the social scheme of things, right? And I think this, this is uh, shown by sort of what they call FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out, right? Which is another aspect of fear that, that you, you want to um, – you, you, you don't want to feel like you're missing out on get-togethers and parties and things, so FOMO. This might also be related to those uh, primal urges, right? The idea of um, the desire for people to uh, be social and get together – uh, you might say, uh, is, is an aspect of survivability. That is, if you're part of a group of people and you run into some sort of trouble, chances are, you know, like another group f- trying to attack you or whatever. If you're in with other people, if you're friends and you have connections with other people, your your survivability would, would increase. Whereas, whereas if you're sort of a, a lone wolf just going by yourself, it may be harder to survive. Right? And I think you can view all of this, these traits and things in either uh, by design or by, uh, what's that one, evolution, th- that uh, those that do survive, their traits are passed on to the next generation. But then, of course, it's not quite that easy because the, the field of epigenetics where experiences the life form has during its life, after it's born, uh, can also be passed on, which cannot be explained by the traditional you know, Darwinian evolution. And I think epigenetics is uh, definitely something that is. Whereas at one point it was, uh, and I'm just this is just what I remember from reading it. That at some point, if you even mentioned epigenetics, you you'd be laughed out of academia. But now there's been enough, I believe, uh, evidence that it does happen that they have to take it more seriously. Of course, on the other hand, is the human being was designed you know, as, as an advanced piece of technology, um, which is a whole other way of looking at it. And then, of course, the, um, the uh, morphic resonance theory of Rupert Sheldrake, which I think is sort of the missing piece of the puzzle in all of this, because it actually um, tends to support uh, the overall idea that life began in a simple form and, and gradually uh, became more and more complex, which is what we normally think of in the evolution process. But um, using morphic resonance, it makes that process uh, much more likely, right? But there's other kinds of fears, what like the fear of public speaking, right? That is uh, – and I'm experiencing a slight amount of that because uh, – this weekend is going to be this, you know, yeah, in like 6 days is going to be my father's and my mother's memorial and I'm going to be speaking at that. I'm not too scared of it. I I think I'll figure out something to say, but you know, and it's going to be a small group of people that I know. So, but it's still public speaking is a little aggravating. Like I you know, uh when I went out to that uh VR conference in 2014, I had to give my uh like my uh my 30-second pitch or whatever, or my 1-minute pitch. That was really aggravating, right? to have to get up in front of this, this group at this convention and talk to try to promote myself for one minute. Um, the fear of public speaking is a big fear, right? But what is that about? What is the fear? It, it, it's basically um, a little, hard, yeah, it's hard to kind of understand like getting up in front of a group of people and speaking and you're the center of attention. Everyone's looking at you. I know they say to imagine the audience naked, but does that really work? I don't know. <laughs> it must have something to do with the social, or cultural aspect, or it's a social aspect of fear, which is, uh, you know, how you fit in. And essentially, a lot of fear, I think, has to do with us working toward setting up our future self for easier times, right? That is um, it, uh, anticipating what your situation will be in the near and, and further future, right? And making sure that you have the basics set up. You have a place to live. You have money. You have uh, uh, people around you. You have all the ingredients to live a satisfying life, right? Right? And a fear of, of losing that or missing out on that, right, is what sort of could result from uh, social uh, mishaps and, uh, and those sorts of issues. But I think also, I think a fear of public speaking has to do with the way that we define ourselves, right? And this, I think, goes to, I think, a root of a lot of fears, which is that the way things are set up, each of us is uh, uh, seemingly separate from other people, right? Each of us is sort of an island unto ourselves, unto ourself, seemingly. Because I know most uh, philosophies eventually get to the point where, like, all is one and we're all connected. But at ground level here, right, street level, like, we all are kind of disconnected from other people, right? We kind of, um, we know we know ourself and our mind and our thoughts. We know the world around us. We actually build a, uh, a copy of the world inside our mind, right? And we also build copies of other people inside our mind, right? And so, by observing the world, we update our internal model of the world. And by observing people, we update our internal model of other people. Right. and then using just the clues that come in through our five senses we have to imagine or model or simu- simulate what another person may be thinking although we just don't we will never know for sure right we just can't get at what's going on inside another person's head unless you're a telepath or something but you know whatever I know that I've I do feel that I have a very low level of, of psychic senses, but not enough that I can peer into someone else's mind. Not, not at all. I would say uh, very low level stuff. And not, I, I don't even know if it's real or just my imagination or whatever. You know. I think there's something to it. But, right, we can never really know what other people think of us or how, we're, how other people view us or how we're coming across. We just have to take our best guess with our internal simulation of the world. So I think that is the fear, a constant kind of fear or concern that, um, you know, are we doing things in a good way and are we, uh, you know, of benefit to other people rather than upsetting other people? And we we can never really know, but we have to use this technique of modeling the world and modeling other people in our mind, in order to uh, have our best uh, understanding of it. And I think that in general, uh, it does seem to this this process does seem to work at some level, but uh, we can never be sure. So I think that, for example, going in front of a crowd and talking, it it challenges in a lot of ways. Like we think we have these models correct and everything, but we might be wrong, right? And I think by you being the focus of attention, it challenges your internal process of uh, 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 your model of the world. And I think especially you talk about this uh, introversion and extroversion, my theory is that this relates to how we define ourselves, right? So I think an introvert, which I am an introvert, it's an mis- kind of a misunderstood phrase, I think. I, I believe that I define myself through an in- more of an internal process. Like I know myself and I define myself uh, more using my own internal uh, s- views rather than trying to interpret other people's views of myself, right? Right. Whereas an extrovert is someone who will put greater weight towards uh, the uh, the way that they interpret other people are interpreting them, right? And I think it's just uh, a, a mind type, right, how you define yourself. It, and I think uh, it's just the weight you give. Uh, I think everyone is using both sides, uh, both your internal understanding of yourself and then... Observing other people, how they react to you in terms of building up your self image. And uh, it's just an introvert will much more rely on the internal, and an extrovert will much more rely on the external factors, right? So, an extrovert in a social situation interacting with other people is going to, uh, every bit, every interaction is just going to sort of reinforce their self image because they're looking for that external those external reactions from other people in order to further define themselves. Whereas an introvert interacting with other people can tend to uh, complicate or sort of uh, weaken your internal view of yourself. So as I can describe it, I love socializing with people and talking to people, hanging out with people. I love it. But afterwards, and it could be a few hours afterwards or the next day, I, I think what's happening is my mind is... Uh, interpreting and sort of crunching the numbers uh, of everything I experience in terms of other people reacting to me to try and uh, reconcile it with my internal view of myself and then that it it produces a a sense of despair Uh, it's all I can it's not really fear but it's sort of this sense of I can't it's hard to describe like Not really sadness, but it just it sort of feels like, yeah, it it feels like a forlorn kind of feeling. It's very hard to describe, but it happens afterwards, not during. Now, of course, you know, and I don't ever let that the anticipation of that feeling prevent me from socializing. But I know it's going to happen. It was a week or two ago. We we did a lot of socializing with birthday parties, a lot of stuff. And my wife is an introvert as well, and I think that we both, uh, we both knew that we would sort of feel it later, and I did. But it's not extreme. It's not terrible, and I, and I know it's going to pass. But I do think a lot of fear stems from social fears where you are, again, trying to fit in and trying to be part of a group, a society. Um, in the same way, you don't want to walk off a cliff. You don't want to say the wrong thing to the wrong person, right? Because uh, as a physical injury will or will be one type of uh, disadvantage, uh, um, a social um, a faux pas is another. Is, is also a similar disadvantage to the human being. But uh, we are. Uh, Living in a, 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 as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're living in a type of society, a type of culture right now that seems to be quite removed from the origins of humanity, right? And so it's, it, it, I'm not sure that the way our society is structured uh, makes it for, like, to be an optimal experience for a human being because things have just gotten way too complicated. And we're processing so much information and dealing with so many different things all the time that it it produces this sort of low-level anxiety and fear all the time, right, because of the kind of society we're living in, right, where, uh, you know, this type of capitalistic system, you have to pay to live, right? And if you don't pay to live, you'll wind up in a very disadvantaged state, the homelessness, etc., so you need to know that you have um, the, your circumstances set up, right? And you need to know that you have money coming in, a job or whatever, or someone else that can pay for your stop. And um, just the endless sort of complications of, of modern life, which seem to produce this sort of uh, low-level fear constantly, which is not really a great way to, to exist, but it's the way it is here. And that, and, and that brings us to kind of um, the the mind as a kind of a computer system, as I was referring to earlier, that it's uh, providing you, right? It's in the same way that it's uh, controlling your bodily functions, that you don't really, you're not even aware of, of these things, like making your heart beat and making you digest food and et cetera, et cetera. It's, they're all automatic functions, Right. And in terms of interpreting uh, the world around you through the senses, a lot of that is also subconscious and, and, uh, and automatic, right? One, one of the things that really fascinates me is, for example, visual information, right? Um, I'm sitting on my porch here looking just out at the street, across the street, and in my field of vision are literally millions and millions of things: every leaf on every tree, every needle on the conifer across the street, um, the blades of grass, the contours of the leaves of these house plants, right? Um, millions of individual shapes in my field of vision right now. Yet I'm not experiencing the interpretation of these shapes. I am being given a kind of overview. It's just, I'm looking at some cars and a street and some trees and a lamp, you know, things like that. But it sort of seems that the mind is uh, crunching all the numbers and then providing you this kind of overview. Now, I've uh very much wondered about the the nature of the delivery, right? So you can say that your eyes, and we're just talking about visual data here, so your eyes are uh, you know, the light enters your eyes, which are like lenses, like cameras, and the the light hits the back of your eye, and there's receptors, and those are converted to electrical signals and goes into the brain, and then there's a a, a type of interpretation going on where if you might imagine, what I'm looking at right now could be just completely meaningless. It's just a bunch of color, colors, intensities, and shapes. But the brain is, uh, the mind, I should say, is, uh, it, it seems to be in this interpretation of overlaying meaning onto the visuals, right? So the visual is just like, wah! It's just like this a bunch of stuff. But when I look, I... I don't have to really m- do that much work. Oh, well, that's a tree. Like, it's just obviously a tree. It's almost like there's the visual, and then it, there's an overlay of meaning on top of the visual, right? You know, that's a table. That's a chair. So, and then just the, the visual with the millions of things, I'm looking at it right now. I see the millions of things. I can look at each individual leaf if I want to. But it's uh, it, it seems, right, we can... Structurally, you could say the mind is creating this interpretation, finding the meanings of the things you're looking at. Somehow, then packaging it up and um, uh, in, into some sort of a delivery package of the experience of the visuals, and then the overlay of meaning on them. Right. Now, what form does that take? What is like that? What is that? Is it a wave? What is it? <laughs> right Like what is it just electrical signals again? But electrical signals are, are patterns and waves. Uh, how is it all packaged up? Then the question is how is it then passed on and delivered to an observer? right? How does the observer receive that?
0: Oh, you're getting deep, Frank. Uh, but this is uh, don't I, I'm, I may have to listen to this again. Yeah, it really is, probably, at least according to the science we know.
3: And it it resonates
0: in my mind, and probably yours as well, that it is. It's just these signals we receive and interpret and create these forms. I mean, uh, do our eyes actually... We often wonder, do we actually see what is there... Or is this some sort of um, grid construct that is limited to what we are interpreting and seeing? And yes, how do we communicate this? And you're, you're, I guess, from talking and talking and thinking, and perhaps you've been doing this a long time because, you know, last uh, I've listened to other talks of yours from way back. You're. Mind works on this descriptive level that I envy very much. Um, The package. Yes, we eventually wind up with this package, which I guess we have enough consensual reality that we can interpret it, turn it into words and gestures, and somehow at least get the gist of it to other people. And some of us, like yourself, are better than I am. I, I try real hard, but I feel more like I'm reading a list than actually feeling, absorbing, analyzing, and interpreting my experiences as much as you are. Uh, but how we process experience is where the fears come from. Oh, I'm going to die. Oh, I'm going to get people upset with me. I'm going to disappoint people. I'm going to disappoint myself. I'm going to be in pain like, oh man, that's like you were talking about the dentist. That is frightful because I probably, no matter what at this point, uh, I'm lucky I have the teeth I have in the condition I have. But someday, if I have the longevity that I would like, it's as good a chance as any that even modern dentistry is going to make it. So there's going to have to be surgeries, appliances, uh, bridges, perhaps. Uh, some of it's genetic. Some of it's from you know the smoking which is just an awful thing to do to your teeth. And here I am, luckily, and, and it's, it's a vanity thing also. I mean, I wonder, and, you know, do you hear people talk who don't have their proper teeth? And I'm, I'm sort of proud of my voice. And perhaps that won't be the same voice anymore. It, it's an losing one's identity as they perceive it. That's that's what I think I'm zeroing in on listening to you here. Um, the, the dentist, the, this, the doctor, the just whole process of decay after a certain point. And really, I mean, when does the decay of the human body and our capacities begin? And, you know, I'm lucky that for whatever reasons... Uh, I have chosen and been without using an automobile and I walk everywhere. I can only imagine how poor my health would be if I didn't do the walking that I have done and continue to. I mean, if I got a car, most people won't even walk a block. And they'll circle around for how long in a parking lot to not walk a minute and a half two minutes and then they'll walk four miles in the mall of course maybe um and then of course there's the days when eventually you have to ride the little carts around the supermarket yeah you know, these are all things to think about and possibly could be feared or they make us wary me wary somebody wary anyway
4: back to you frank i just had to interject that the transfer of that, whatever that is, that wave, that's, that package, to the uh, uh, observing uh, self, the consciousness. And that, to me, as, as a thought experiment, has always sort of boggled my mind because I, I, I'm not really sure how it's being delivered. And, of course, fear is is delivered in a, in a similar way, right? It's delivered... As a, as a signal, as a package, whatever to, to your observer, the observer. But yeah, that is sort of an offshoot concept that is very, uh, very mind boggling. And I, and I think that when I was uh, really delving into this a while back, I was, it really feels like, uh this idea that all these processes are disconnected does, it feels like it probably wouldn't work if everything was disconnected or sort of passing on information from entity to entity or part to part. It does feel more that we sort of have to be a part of the totality of everything in order for this to work. Right. Anyway, uh, on a more practical level, um, one thing that I've, I've talked about a lot on the show is, uh, is the work of uh, Dr. John Sarno and his uh, Tension Myositis Syndrome or TMS theory, which uh, relates to a lot of this stuff and does relate to fear as well. Basically, we, we can sort of understand structurally that the mind is uh, doing a lot of work at levels that you're not consciously aware of and then is, is delivering Uh, Summaries or information to your conscious mind, right, so that uh, all of the calculations and all of everything, you don't have to really worry about that. You just receive it in the end. The idea is that, uh, and this uh, came about because of uh, Howard Stern's book, Howard Stern, the radio shock jock, uh, had been suffering from severe lower back pain and OCD, or obsessive compulsive disorder. He heard about Doctor Sarno and went to him, and learned uh, Sarno's uh, technique, which was sim- is simply to acknowledge that this is happening. What's going on is that uh, the automatic functions of the mind, facing the challenges of the kind of society that we're living in, which is not what we were the kind of place we're designed to, to live in, is uh, misinterpreting the importance of uh, various uh, interpretations. And usually it has to do with something that's emotionally painful. So the mind understands that there's a certain topic that you find painful to consciously consider, in which case it acts to create a, uh, a distraction in the body to, uh, in order to relieve you from having to think about the emotionally painful thing. And it can take many forms. And this lower back pain is one that the mind is actually uh, constricting uh, muscles and restricting blood flow to areas of your lower back, producing real pain, but for the express purpose of uh, preventing you from thinking about emotionally painful things. And I think if you've asked anyone that's experienced a lower back pain, and I have experienced it, uh, I'd much rather... Think about emotionally painful things, then feel that terrible pain. But the mind is, is, doesn't know this, and it's, it is uh, producing all of these syndromes and symptoms, uh, OCD being another one, and many others uh, could be part of this, because it simply doesn't know that you would rather think about these negative things than experience these pains or these uh, syndromes. So, Dr. Sarno's technique in a nutshell, is to uh, the similarly to how you can uh, when you're breathing, you normally don't, it can be an automatic function or, let me try to do it here you can take conscious control of it so the idea is you need to um, even though you can't exactly take conscious control of this process I'm talking about you can uh, command or interact with your mind in order to let it know that no, I would much rather think about these uh, emotionally painful things than feel that pain or whatever other symptoms. I uh, I did uh, experience a severe lower back pain a number of years ago. I already knew about Dr. Sarno's book through Howard Stern. So I got a copy of the book, and I only had to read like the first chapter to understand uh, the concept, and uh, I was able to uh, use the technique, which is just Thinking in your mind. You don't have to do any exercises. You don't have to take any medicine. You don't have to do anything other than think. You just have to think. I know it sounds too good to be true that you could just think yourself well, but in this case, it does work. Uh, The first time I had it was the most severe. I was able to sort of identify the emotionally painful thing. And uh, at first, I was just telling my mind, you know, listen, stop distracting me with this lower back pain. I'd rather think about those painful things, which aren't really that bad in any way. It's just part of life that there's things that are emotionally painful. I'd much rather think about those things. I'm not going to solve the issue, but I'd much rather consciously think about emotionally painful things than feel this pain. And um, my pain, at the most severe, if I could draw a graph, it went, there was a straight line going down. It took a few months for it to completely dissipate, but... It was clearly less and less using this technique until it was completely gone. And I've had two more bouts of it, and it has, uh, both of those went much quicker using the technique. My current technique is simply to, and this is much simpler, is to, first you have to identify, and this is, I think, the problems. A lot of people aren't able to even identify those emotionally painful things that, uh, and it doesn't have to be anything severe. It, It can be something very small. As long as you can identify the what, the the root cause, uh, you know. I now when I and I do feel twinges of lower back pain from now and then. I tell my mind, I'm like, every moment I feel that pain, I am going to think about the emotionally painful things ten times as much, and I'm going to think about every possible emotionally painful thing in my life when I feel that pain, and that takes care of it almost instantly. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing how well that works. Um, So I think that phobias, for example, as those extreme fears, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, acrophobia, the fear of heights, all those phobias, I think could be uh, aspects of tension myositis syndrome, actually. did, it can have so many different manifestations. That lower back pain, apparently, in I think one thing Doctor Sarno says in the books is uh, you know like in, pl- in places that are much less developed, say like parts of Africa and Asia, for example, where people are doing essentially backbreaking labor all day long, lower back pain is unheard of. They, they don't experience it, and it's just that actually living in uh, this society, someone must have complained about this back pain and the people around them hear them talking about experiencing lower back pain. And then the mind picks up on that as a, as a good tool to use to create these distractions. Right. So it's almost like a social contagion as they say. Uh, so fear, there's plenty of times where fear, you know, they talk about the fight or flight response as a survival technique. Um, is very necessary for survival, but unreasonable levels of fear are potentially distractions because of this uh, malfunction of the mind. So this tension myocytosis syndrome is a malfunction, and perhaps not uh, perhaps not a malfunction, but a, uh, a an imbalance of right the mind not being able to know uh, that. Certain issues are really not that important, um, so I think a lot of those fears come from the te- the, the tension myocytosis syndrome. Wow, it's a bit of a new interpretation. I, I was just kind—I was just kind of like riffing on all this stuff, and I, I, I didn't realize. Wow, I, I sort of a. Uh, so I think, yeah, a lot of those irrational fears are from are from that. So it does seem that this, uh, you know, and of course the medical establishment doesn't accept it. Oh, this is pseudoscience. It's quackery. It's not real. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, it cured me multiple times. So obviously there's no physical condition that's causing the lower back pain in my case. There are cases where it is physical, but I think a lot of them are not. What would happen if we learned, if everyone learned this technique from a young age, that you have to take a bit of an active role in terms of, um, managing how your mind uh, um, interprets things right yeah oh, but anyway I was gonna talk about a bit like uh, our relationship with fear in a broader sense and like the whole horror movie genre right how people want to experience uh, fear but in a controlled situation it and, and I you know I have really never been a big fan of the horror genre per se, but I've known so many people that are really into it. And they describe it like uh, th- these are all fears. For example, a uh, body horror. Um, a lot of the movies are about uh, you know serial killers that are dismembering people, etc. And they describe it as that they are, I, I think, at a deep level so scared of being injured and being hurt that somehow seeing it being done to someone else in a fictional setting, you know it's fictional, uh, is, it somehow um, allows you to face your fears more. Right? Uh, you know, and then there's the sort of the jump scare aspect of the genre where you, you, you're experiencing shock and, and, and surprise and, and momentary fear in a controlled situation. Because I think that we do sort of fear fear itself. Who has to say, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Let me look at that quote. I'm going to predict it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Or is it Delano? No, Delano. Delano, Delano. I don't know. Yes, I was correct. There he is, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Where's the quote? Come on. Mm -hmm. Hold on, let me pause, I'll find this. All right, here we go, 1933.
5: This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision with the present situation of our people impels. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. We face our common difficulties they concern, thank God, only material things. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce, and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number of with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. And yet we are stricken by no plague of locusts. Compared with the perils which our forefathers conquered, we have still much to be thankful for. Nature still offers our bounty, and human efforts have multiplied it. Plenty is at our doorstep.
4: That was the excerpt. Uh, What did he say? Produce? (laughs) He said produce. The produce of their farms. A really weird way of saying produce. Uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, and that does also sort of talk about how we're living with our primitive uh, systems in a more modern age, but still having to deal with those primitive urges and those primitive responses, and uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I think he's, what he's also saying is that we have all of the ingredients to have a good place to live here. And we've just sort of temporarily bucked it up. But it's not like a plague of locusts or whatever. We can, we can fix it. Um, and it's just sort of that the fear of, again, what I was talking about, like your near future uh, you know the next days weeks months years and what's going to happen are you going to have food to eat are you going to are you, you going to be homeless like the fear of that the paralyzing terror of that then leads to worse and worse situations because people stop people are paralyzed by the fear and they can't begin to fix things and that may be related to why people like horror movies? Because you fear fear, and by watching a horror movie, you can experience fear in a controlled setting and face those fears in some ways. Anyway, I've, as finally, I want to look through the, uh, the listings here in the Overnightscape Underground of the word fear in the, uh, the show listings. Oh look, here's a, a topic I used to talk about: clone fear. Hello, the fear that I'm actually like a clone. <laughs> I think everyone's thought about that at some point How about A song from Fuzzy Dogmer, Fear number one There's a song uh, From 500 song trip Fear is nothing new by Jim Jim Guitard Midnight Citizen number 20 Fear and all that Wow That's from uh, 2011 Or, or so Midnight Citizen uh, and from 2014, Techno Fear. That's another kind of fear. And the one I was really thinking of, of course, um, the second uh, episode of Central that Jimbo uh, put together back in 2016. His first one was Pockets, Cans, and UFOs, and the second one was Fail, Fear, and Fake. And around the same time, P.Q., you had a, an episode of Q.S. called Magical Thinking and the Fear of the Western Mind. And uh, Fusebox in 2017 had a, uh, an episode, Fusebox 69, Fear and Lounging, as opposed to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, of course, here in Hack in 2019, The Greatest Fear, talking about, I think, facing the fear of death. Right, P.Q.? and what else do we have is that it <laughs> is that all the fear we've had here on the uh on the the network here let's see well at least in terms of uh show titles and the descriptions and the in the over the overarching uh yeah like the the yeah that's yeah the track listing document i have yeah interesting very good Fear. Certainly uh, an aspect of humanity that's unpleasant, but uh, I don't know if uh, this world would be the same without it. It's in the mix. It's one of the ingredients, the mysterious uh, formula for the uh, oddly satisfying, though often annoying, life as a human being. Back to you, PQ. I did a segment before the show.
0: Because, you know, sometimes on a topic, I do want to organize my thoughts and not just rely on my comments. And so I did that. But yes, Q, especially uh, because of his system, Tolteca, whatever we want to refer to his um, philosophy as. that Death is our advisor. And if we are in contact with that idea and that be are this body at least is going to die and he has very you should listen to the here and heck shows especially death as an advisor but there's so many of them and there's a lot about death and his view of what the afterlife can be if one is in a certain frame of mind and has the discipline to always remember that, it, that we are going to leave this place and perhaps if we follow this system we can with I suppose a team of fellow thinkers of the same way go to a further existence it's really he explains it better but yes death is probably at the end of the day or just not being in this realm as we are now and then fading away into nothing i mean how many people have lived on the face of the planet and how many people who lived over a hundred years ago are now remembered in any way shape or form and is that a bad thing or is this just some sort of function of this human ego that we have, or this maybe a false self-importance, all of these things. This is all tricky business, and it's also stuff that at least in the form we are and with what we know now as humans can never know. Um, yeah, that was great, Frank, and as usual, that a splendid monologue, or as Jimbo would say, monology and Jimbo often I mean he knew death was imminent and he had faced death there's an episode where he talks about when his wife passed that's just so powerful and really and listening to the overnight scape central right after Jimbo passed when we are all facing that ending and somebody being and then not being it that's it it's fear and uh let me uh, it, it just treat you or uh, subject you depending on how you look at it to uh Brett, the appreciator talking about fear. Yeah, fear. Fear man, what do I that, and just recently I am finding my fear. And it's realizing that although some part of me still felt, you know, I'm I'm young, I'm a kid, and even I live in a town of seniors, so I can and have been able to maintain this. I mean, there's people older than me, and uh, I'm a younger guy. I'm not any longer a younger guy. And the... you know it's like you're watching a movie and it's going on and on and you're enjoying it and suddenly you're realizing that it's going to come to the end and that i I gotta tell you there that has to be the biggest i mean yes i've been uh, afraid of becoming broke or losing everything or losing love or uh, losing a person in my life or a situation or a job and uh, just worried maybe at times in the past like where my next meal may be coming from or if I'm going to have a roof over my head but all of these kind of are not anything compared to uh, that there is an ending coming and yeah, but it's, I can, you can joke about it. And, yeah, uh, well, we're kind of on the station. I mean, Frank has, in the last few years, lost his parents. I lost my father a few years ago now. And it just seems so unreal in a certain way. But now, because... Maybe it's, you know, because I was stoned quite a bit of the time and now I'm not, that I'm actually able to visualize there's going to be a time when I, number one, the worst part of, I mean, if death were this, like you're going along just fine and then you're gone like that, you know, you disappear and you're gone and but there is no decay pain or suffering but i really think i am starting to notice a decay i don't talk as clearly as i used to my thoughts can get and and this may well not even be alzheimer's there's this brain fog thing that uh seems to affect some people And they say it's a COVID side effect. After COVID, you have this brain fog. And, you know, some days I'm really... uh, My memory... I mean, I think I remember something so perfectly. And I remember... You know, I can still remember song lyrics from songs I haven't heard and melodies from years ago. But then there are things... You know, I'm discussing it with somebody and they're telling me things they remember me doing or us doing together and I just don't remember. I don't. Or I remember that situation going down and being completely different. Or I remember, you know, an old friendship or an old relationship in a way that even when I examine it, I'm thinking well, it really wasn't that way. How did I come to think that? And maybe it isn't a fear of dying, it's a fear of loss of one's mental facilities or that they are not going to work at some point in the future. And... Maybe that's why the shift in these podcasts that I do, that that the appreciator and all that, this anxiousness to somehow preserve whatever I have left in me and talk about it and not so much be outwardly uh, looking to some future but digging into some past and maybe relating it to what the present is, but I don't know. The future used to be something wide open and bright, and I could do anything. I could change my career. I could move to a new town, meet new people, do new things. And that really, as a reality, it's not the same as even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And... I find things like things that happened in the eighties or the nineties are still like I feel like it was so briefly ago it, it was just you know, last year a few years ago or talking about uh yeah how long oh that was uh oh five ten no that was fifteen twenty years ago there seems to be an is this I don't think this is a personal dysfunction because I remember talking to older people and I still talk to older people and this just is how one thinks I mean I remember you know in the early 70s oldies and old music that they hardly ever played wasn't that long ago I mean all that 50s music in the 50s revival around the time of American graffiti for example I mean, that was music because it was from when around I was born and before I was born. That was old music, even though I was 12. And now music that's nearly 40 years ago, I don't want to think of it as old or oldies. And this continues. I'm sure there are people who music from, say, 2003 plays on the radio, and that's their song, and then they realize this was 20 years ago. So, I mean, yes, I sort of fear getting sick and suffering. I think everybody does that at any point in life, and this whole COVID thing that happened over the last few years kind of brought that home to a lot of people. There, We all know people who are still, you know, hiding and wearing masks, and doing all the protocols, and it's out of some, like, I'm going to get very sick and be hooked to a ventilator and maybe die? And not be here, and not be present. And it isn't like I want to live forever. I mean, the idea of going to a final rest doesn't sound that awful. It's like, but it's the people... One would lose, and again, I mean, so long. Say you're with somebody, and everything is that you're decaying together, maybe, but a I, I fear that you are going to decay, and they're going to have to watch that and deal with. Say me, the slowly losing my memory to the point where, you know, that th- I've and I've seen it. People who, th- there was a guy who lived next door when I lived uh, uh, down on Marr Street. And old guy, he would sit on the porch every night and uh, you'd see him around. And I found out that like the last year of his life, every day he would talk to his old friends and have these conversations And then one day he laid down and went to sleep. But all these conversations were something, I mean, he would sit there in a chair and talk to the air. And for him, yes, he was talking to his old friends and reliving these moments and having apparently a pleasant time. But somebody had to be there to make sure he ate and functioned And he was alert enough to respond in some way to them. But he was in his own world? And yet, one day they put him... But there has to be a they. I mean, what happens to old people like myself? I mean, I'm single. I don't foresee, at least at this point, having a significant other... I mean, I'd like to. Somebody who's just going to be there. And yes, when that happens will be attached enough not to run away and care for me i mean we have all seen to some degree what happens in a lot of these homes and facilities that one winds up in when one is no longer lucid enough to take care of themselves or you fall down and you're in a hospital or we have a va hospital here and there are people who are just there i mean and What do you get, a little cubicle and a bed, and you sit and you sort of look at a television? Or I guess in the future, a computer, if you can still have enough cognizance to use it as a tool? Uh, The loss of the mind, it's something to really think about. And fear, I mean, even to get death, well, suffering, I mean, a, a long time of pain and discomfort and not being able to function and you're still in this body that doesn't work and you're aware enough to know that your mind isn't clicking the way it should yeah i mean that's scarier than a monster movie or it's well yeah and that's fear that's a real fear And there we are. Um, and the comments are welcome and, like I say, follow-ups. And here's where we talk about next week's Overnight Scape Central. And uh, next week, this is kind of an abstract topic, but it's one that really is integral to how I am and how we all, I guess, deal with our day-to-day life and what we do, and that is focusing Focusing is the topic of next week's show, and I hope that stimulates your thoughts and you're thinking, oh, I have things to say about that. For if you do, here is how that will work. Um, You have until the 24th of July at about 7 p.m. Mountain Time to get me your contribution. Uh, A little more, a little less, uh, but do it. Send it in. Do it now. Make a recording and send it to kpqr.torc at gmail.com. You can also, if you are unable to record, don't want to record, and just want to say something, if you have any other comments, you send them to kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And I am more than happy to read uh, just about anything on your behalf for inclusion and participation in the Overnightscape scape central because this show is open to you and if you have friends that you think would have something interesting to say on any of these topics that we posit by all means they're invited this is an open forum for ideas thoughts and opinions and just overall BS. I And if you just want to shoot something out there, uh, a funny comment that may or may not relate, um, an anecdote perhaps, but uh, or just to exercise uh, your mind. But we're at focus, if you will. And uh, well, let's talk about focus when we gather here again next week. Um, again, the email address kpqr.torc at gmail.com and uh, my thanks go out to the artist Shaman Q Simon, Mike Booty Ched Bowers and of course as always Frank Edward Nora and you because uh, otherwise we're just talking to ourselves and uh, well that's nice because you know we're having a conversation here but you get to kind of eavesdrop on our thoughts and ideas and uh, I appreciate your participation by doing that. Um, so let's meet here again next week and really think about it, take some time and and talk to us because, uh, yeah, we're talking to you and you have the opportunity to add your two cents. Um, until we meet again, set the controls for the heart of the fun and check out the other stuff at
4: onsug.com.